Hello everyone and welcome to the Business of PT podcast. I'll be your host, JT Moore. In this podcast, we will be interviewing successful physical therapists and learning about their stories in the field of PT. We will discuss a variety of topics such as entrepreneurship, careers, and pathways in physical therapy, as well as important characteristics in becoming a great PT. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you liked it, make sure to subscribe to get updates when new podcasts are released. Thanks, everyone. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the podcast. Today, we have the pleasure of having Rafi Salazar with us. He's the principal owner of Rehab U Practice Solutions, which is a leader in patient retention strategy for healthcare organizations. He helps clinics and healthcare systems improve patient engagement and experience, leading to increased revenue and lifetime patient value. He is the CEO and president of Proactive Rehabilitation and Wellness and serves on the board of directors for NBCOT and on the Georgia State Board of Occupational Therapy. Rafi, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm really excited to be able to talk to you. Like we said a little bit before the podcast, before we started recording, you're the first non-physical therapist on the podcast. I'm able to to hear your (laughs) perspective on everything, so it'll be really cool. Would you be able to introduce yourself to the audience and give a little background on yourself? Yeah, sure. So my name's Rafi Salazar. Um, I'm an occupational therapist by trade, and I was basically doing upper extremity rehab care in in an outpatient specialty rehab department for... Uh, the Department of Veterans Affairs at our local VA hospital. And then circa 2016, 2017, uh, decided to leave the VA to do some consulting for a state organization, the the Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Disabilities here in Georgia. And basically we did everything from integrated clinical support services across the state to some policy work and a lot of the managed care work for them. Um, and in the meantime, while that, while that contract was going on, I was also um, starting Rehab U Practice Solutions, which was my own private consultancy, helping healthcare organizations with patient engagement, patient retention, um, completing courses of care, that sort of thing. And then back in October of 2020, I purchased a physical therapy clinic myself. So now I do the, do the consulting as well, but then I've got a a multidisciplinary clinic now that's uh, massage, PT, and occupational therapy here in Augusta, Georgia. That is awesome. Very cool. Congratulations on all that. And I, I kind of wanted to be able to know what kind of got you into OT, and could you explain that career path you kind of did already, but what got you into OT to begin with? Sure. So I like to tell people that uh, the healthcare field and occupational therapy in general kind of found me as, as opposed to me searching for it. It was the summer before my senior year in high school, and... I knew I was either going to follow my dad's footsteps and become an engineer, or I was going to do something in healthcare. My grandfather is a vascular surgeon, and I had spent some time in his clinic and thought, um, I I like the relational aspect of of treating patients, seeing them, building a relationship with them. And I kind of thought I was going to do one of those things, but I really had no idea. And uh, that summer, I was fishing in the river with some friends and was walking back to shore, waiting back to shore, slipped and fell. And... Uh, found myself at the recipient of a of a of a glass bottle that someone had left in the bottom of the river, 
ended up cutting my flexor pollicis longus tendon, so the, the tendon to my thumb, and a branch of my median nerve, and that landed me in an OT clinic three times a week for the balance of the summer <laughs> going into my senior year in high school. So it kind of came along at the, at the perfect time if something like that could happen at a perfect time, um, right when I was about to pick a career path. So went through occupational therapy, decided I really wanted to do something in the rehab space, wanted to focus on hands a lot. And uh, one thing led to another, graduated, did some undergrad work, and then went into a occupational therapy department here in Georgia. That is awesome. Actually, like when you said it, I kind of had the same, I was either thinking engineering or PT when I initially thought of it too. So that's funny that we both have that similar, but that's a pretty... Uh, intense way to get introduced to it just with that own personal experience right there but that is awesome I'm really grateful that you were able to find this career and that you've had such success in it um, yeah it's been a ride for sure <laughs> for sure and I kind of wanted to go into uh, you are the owner of rehab you practice solutions could you explain a little bit about that to us and how you came up with that idea Sure. So Rehab U Practice Solutions was actually at one point in time when I first started the company was going to be a continuing education company, hence Rehab U. We were trying to make a little play on, on words there. Um, and it was going to be all around patient relationships and the value of leveraging relationships to improve clinical outcomes. So a lot of the coursework was going to be in that realm of things. And the idea for that really came from my work at the VA. So I was in their uh, executive leadership development series or, or training program when I was there. And this was back in 2012, 2013, when the VA was in the news for all the wrong ways. So the VA had been uh, the, the center of a, a large scandal that was, uh, we called it the scheduling scandal internally. I don't know what it was called on the news, but basically there were issues across the, the entire healthcare system, the VA healthcare system of patients being put on paper wait lists or um, not called back for appointments or you know being documented as having been scheduled for appointments and then not actually being scheduled. It was a very, very big mess. And it broke at the Phoenix VA. That was the first, the first, uh, the first reports that came out of it. And then it kind of, as people dug, it kind of um, was shown to be more of a of a systemic issue. So the VA was in a, in a very bad way in 2012, 2013 on two angles. So they were losing a lot of employees. So they, they had a lot of turnover, primarily in their hospitals where those, where those employees were kind of overworked anyways. Um, and then there was a lack of trust on the patient side. So patients were coming into the VA, they were already disgruntled, they were already angry, they were already not trusting of the healthcare system. So the VA was really trying to find a way to kind of blend both of those. Like how do we keep good employees and how do we keep them engaged and excited about their job, have them show up doing the, the work that needs to be done? And then how do we, at the same time, make sure that patients that are showing up, that their families, that their caregivers, whoever, all the stakeholders that are, that are showing up to our facilities um, have a renewed sense of trust in the organization. And what they landed on was something called relationship-based care. And the idea was that at an organizational level, we would try to build strong relationships between the, clinici the clinicians or the clinical team, so like the treatment team, and that would flow over into the patient relationship. It would prevent, um, prevent medical issues, you know, miscommunication issues, uh, and that sort of thing. So I was tasked with rolling it out on one of the, the units here at our, at our VA, on one of the inpatient units, and then across the outpatient side as well. 
Um, and I did that and it was fun. And I realized that, you know, the, the idea of leveraging patient relationships and relationships among clinicians and building a great team, like that whole thing has a lot more ap applicability than just the VA healthcare system, right? So this was percolating. I was like, oh, well, maybe I'll just make some courses about it. One thing led to another. I was leaving the VA to do some consulting. I said, well, you know what? I'm gonna need something else in case this contract doesn't work. <laughs> in case this consulting uh, contract goes away in six months. So I just started reaching out to local clinics in the area and said, hey, this is, you know, I'm thinking about offering some consulting services in and around um, leveraging patient relationships with the end goal of helping patients uh, complete their course of care, one, to improve their clinical outcomes, but also to put more money in your pocket, right? Um, I think it, the last study that was done by Strive Labs, which is kind of in conjunction with WebPT, was something like uh, $62 billion a year in the U.S. is is lost opportunity uh, cost for patients not showing up to their subsequent appointments. So there's definitely a market there. And one thing led to another, started picking up clients, started doing doing that kind of work on a, on a greater scale. And it's, you know, one thing led to another, here I am. <laughs> yeah. And I, that's the question I wanted to ask. Did you always envision yourself as an entrepreneur growing up? Did you ever have that goal of, of being an entrepreneur? Like, where did that stem from? Yeah, I don't really know. So my grandfather down in Costa Rica, my, my dad's from Costa Rica, he made a fortune back in the day as an entrepreneur. They were importing tractors and industrial equipment, farm equipment, and he had been self-employed his whole life, basically. And at one point in time, he lost everything. Um, some The business just went under, it got taken from him. It was a, it was a nasty thing. Anyways, my, I think that really affected my dad. And growing up, my dad worked for U.S. Department of Agriculture. Then he was a teacher and I was an engineer. I mean, he was an engineer the whole time. But um, he was very much uh, affected by what happened to his dad. So his way of looking at the world was we need to find a safe, secure job, work it as long as we can and have a, a stable retirement. Um, and that's kind of what I had grown up with and thought, okay, like I'll just get this job at the VA. I'll work there for 30 years and then I'll be set for, I'll be able to retire, you know, 52 or whatever, whatever it was. Um, and it wasn't until probably a couple years into clinical work where I realized that that, that was just not in the cards for me. <laughs> call me, call me unemployable, called me whatever. I just felt like there were so many issues in the way that care was being delivered and the the solutions to them were very simple and all it all it really took was someone making the decision and i was like well why can't that be me why can't i do something that affects care on a larger scale and not have to answer to a bureaucracy so i think at the end of the day what pushed me into entrepreneurship was the ability to do the work that i wanted to do the way i wanted to do it and have the impact that i knew was possible for a clinician or someone with our background to have on the process of care. And I mean, that played out in spades that when I consulted for the Department of Behavioral Health, I mean, I was having meetings with folks that were setting policy for statewide care. And that's something that probably would never, that would have never happened if I had just been, you know, punching my time clock every day at the VA, you know? Gotcha, yeah, no, and I love that, like, to see that, like, obviously, like, that's how affected, like, from your grandparents to you, to your parents to yourself and that you were able to kind of have that drive and you've been so successful with it that's what i kind of wanted to because i think some of the things that you mentioned when you're talking about rehab you 
I loved because I feel like there's certain things right now, I'm on my clinical rotations um, in PT school, and I feel like I'm in an outpatient ortho, and some of the things that you highlighted as far as patients completing their plan of care or getting that by and creating that rapport with them, those things are so vital and so important that I love that you found that need and addressed it and have been able to help people kind of better solidify those those aspects of, of making their their treatment, their experience with physical therapy or OT that much more enjoyable. So I'm really I really commend you for doing that. Thank you for that. Oh yeah. And I kinda wanted to know when you started becoming an entrepreneur, what were some of those big challenges um, when you came on? You kind of said you reached out to people. It feels like you kind of already had a good network, but were you having to like build that network? Or what are some of the other big challenges that you faced when you initially became an entrepreneur? Yeah, I think the first thing you, <laughs> the first thing you face is just overwhelm. Like there's, there's so much to do that you will never get done when you start any kind of company. Um, and for me, it was just me, myself and I, at that point, it was, I was a solopreneur trying to, trying to do some stuff and there's literally more work than can be done in any hours of the day and whatever combination you have. So probably the biggest challenge and really, I don't know if it was so much a challenge as much as a, an adaptation. I just needed to, to develop some systems around how I manage my day, what I did when the workload that was kind of spread load over the week so that you're hitting your benchmarks, you're hitting your goals, you're growing the way you want to be growing. Um, and that's probably the biggest, the biggest probably shift when you go from being an employee to being self-employed or, or becoming a, an entrepreneur is that you don't have a boss there telling you what your work is for the day. You don't have a schedule that gets created for you by somebody. Like if you don't work, you don't get paid. If your clients aren't happy, you're not getting paid. You're not going to get more clients. So there's, uh, it all becomes dependent on your your ability to to do those things. <laughs> so there's a little bit of pressure there, and that was probably something we grappled with, you know, for the first little bit after after transitioning out of that into consulting. Yeah, that definitely is a motivating factor for sure. But I think at the same time, it's fun because you're able to do what you think is important, what like, and you kind of create that own trajectory for yourself. So I love that aspect of it. And one of the things that you mentioned was about that I, I kind of want to pivot now to is about the lost revenue that happens in in the re rehabilitation world, um, and that we're not able to sometimes finish the plans of care. I think you shared with me before that seven out of ten patients never complete their course of care, and I wanted to know why is that? Like, why do we have such a big disparity, a drop off there? And what are some of the things that you yourself and your company address in that? Yeah. So, um, that's a, that's a very big question that why, right? <laughs> um, yeah. So the, the, most of the research that's been done shows that around 70% of, of patients that are enrolled in an outpatient rehab plan of care, don't complete it. Um, most of the time, I, I, the fact, the, the statistics are escaping me at this point, but it's something along the lines of, um, 70% won't complete their course of care, but it's like 14% won't show up to their follow-up appointment. And then upwards of 20 to 30% won't show up to their third appointment. So you're already losing patients after date of eval most of the time. The reason for that varies, but it all revolves around, at least the way I see it, and I think the research would, would bear this out as well, is that it it all revolves at some point or another the linchpin is the patient's perception of the value of the care that you're going to provide or the value of the service that you're going to provide so if a patient shows up in your in your clinic and i mean let's call it they just have a bad experience the the 
the staff is kind of gruff or they're short with them. They have to wait a while to come see you. They fill out this giant, giant thing of paperwork that could have been, you know, a couple of initials. Um, you name it, all the works. We've all had that sitting in any kind of doctor's office or medical appointment. Um, they're already their perception of the value that you're going to provide is getting lower. <laughs> so what we know about the human brain is that our expectations inform our perception and our perception is our reality. Um, and our experiences in the day to day affect our expectations, right? So if we, if we have a negative experience off the bat, it's already going to lower our expectations for what this person can do for me, what this clinic can do for me. And then on top of that, if the interpersonal interactions between the direct clinicians or the, the person that's providing that service, either giving the evaluation, completing the evaluation or providing that treatment has a little bit to be desired as well, then that just makes it all the more um, all the more likely that that patient won't complete their plan of care. I think most of the research around um, patient satisfaction, patient engagement, the, the, the two big areas that affect a patient's overall experience with a healthcare experience or healthcare engagement is one, the process of care or the organization of care. So like, what are the steps that they need to take in order to receive care? You know, how do they check in? How do they call? All of that kind of stuff. And then the other big piece is the interpersonal attributes or the interpersonal interactions that they're having with the clinician and with the staff. So those two areas are kind of the big areas. They all tie into that perceived value on the patient side. Um, but if you're, if there's something lacking in either the way you're communicating with your patients or the way you're interacting with them, the way they're interacting with your organization, or in the way that you've got the, the, the organization of care set up or the process of care set up, you're going to see a very, very high, um, attrition rate, if you would. Yeah, that makes, that makes a lot of sense right there. And I kind of wanted to ask like a follow-up question with that is, uh, from from what I'm getting from everything you say, those initial impressions are so key and so vital in creating a, a positive effect, a positive outlook for the patient. What are some of those things that are important things to imp, like implement early on to make such a powerful first impression? Yeah, so there are two areas that you need to focus on, again, because there are two, two main areas um, that affect patient engagement and experience overall. So one would be how you how you manage the process of care and we'll talk about that and then i'll talk about the interpersonal interaction so process of care would be how are patients scheduled how do you get the information that you need to get from the patient when they call to schedule an appointment or when you're reaching out to them all of the research around that shows that what most what most organizations do what most patients receive when they're getting scheduled for an appointment is they're they're basically being run through a checklist, which checklists are great and they're wonderful. They make sure we don't miss things. But if the patient walks away from that experience, scheduling the appointment, for example, and feels that they're just a number on a list for you or that um, you don't truly care or value their, their input, um, they're already walking into that appointment, that first appointment with lower expectations. So what we tell a lot of our clients to do and what we have done ourselves here at Proactive is we've tried to take the process of care, the process of getting on the schedule even, and turning that from a clinic-centric or an organization organizational-centric um, operation or procedure and turning it entirely patient-centric. And the way you do that 
is really in just one, the order in which you collect, collect the information you need. Um, and then the questions that you're asking before the patient even shows up, um, you can go way, way into the weeds here, but we basically, when, it, when somebody calls the clinic or calls one of our clients clinics and asks, you know, whether or not they do PT, do you, you know, my back hurts, I need PT. Do you take my insurance? We train our staff, we train our clients to, to delay that question, not because it's not important and you need it, but because really what's in, when the, when a patient is reaching out to you, or you're reaching out to the patient because you received a referral, they have a problem. And that problem is not necessarily whether or not you take their insurance. Their problem is the pain they're feeling in their back or in their leg or their knee, whatever it is. And what they really want to know is one, that you understand that one, <laughs> that you, you understand they're in pain, that you validate that, that feeling of theirs Two, that you are competent and proficient enough to handle that, to provide the services that they need to get them over that pain, to provide a solution. And that two, you're going to do it in a way that, that values them. So we, we train our staff and we train clients to, to delay that question, you know, not deflect it, but you say, okay, yes, you know, we'll get to your, your insurance in a minute, but let me ask you a question, you know, what's going on with your back? And then you go from there, you really want to drive out the patient's narrative, their narrative or their subjective experience of their, um, their diagnosis or their disorder or whatever it is. Because when you get that, one, you're more informed on how to, to better communicate with that patient. But two, the patient feels like you've taken the time to listen to them, you understand them. So they're already a little bit more emotionally invested in showing up to your appointments. Um, but two, they feel like, that is so different from any other experience they've had at another clinic that they already are starting to think, man, these people do something a little different. Um, there's something to them. Maybe I'm going to, maybe I'm going to get better results or better outcomes from showing up to them. So it's already kind of raising that expectations before they even show up to the clinic. And so that's the process of care. We can put that aside and you can do whole books on that. The other aspect is the interpersonal interactions that you're having with the with the client when they show up to your appointment, right? And that would be things like the questions that you're asking, how your your body language is communicating your attention or inattention to the patient, right? So one of the one of the big examples is um, in every first evaluation that comes in, like the first appointment, the consultation, patient comes in. You need to, as a, as a therapist, you need to do a, a bunch of things, right? Like you need to get outcome measures done. You need to get objective measures done. And then you need to get patient perception and or subjective information to put all in your evaluation. There's two ways you can do that. You can do that entirely by following your form or following whatever, you know, WebPT or RainTree or whatever you're using, following the template that's in the, in the EMR. Or you can do it again, patient centric. So we have a series of questions that we that we ask patients when they come in, and we train folks to do. You can do it six or seven steps. But basically, what you want to do is you get the patient in, you get them to explain again, kind of in their own words, what's going on. You definitely need to get the measurements you need, but before you get there, you want to ask how that is impacting their life, and then you want to ask some sort of open-ended question that gets to the root of the problem. Some people call this having a value conversation. Some people call it a reframing question, whatever you want to call it. What you basically want to do is tell the patient, all right, this is what you've told me. And I use like a, 
a modification of the Dan Sullivan question, but I say something along the lines of, okay, um, let's just pretend it's you know, a year from now. You've already finished your physical therapy. You, you, you know, you saw me for your knee or whatever. Um, and you and I are having coffee and you're happy. You're really, really happy. What's happened in the last year that has made you so happy. And then you just take notes and that patient most of the time will open up to you about things that are far more involved and more valuable to them than their subjective knee pain at this moment right so i've had patients talk to me about i mean you name it getting back together with their their estranged spouse uh quitting drinking um one a patient of mine wanted to get start training for a marathon like all of these things that would have never come out if i didn't take the time to to ask and then to listen so that's the first step is really just being open to hearing the patient's narrative and the, and getting down to that desired future state in a way that you're you're digging down into the real real deep valuable stuff and then there's you know you can structure the rest of the 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 appointment the way you need to you know test uh, treat, retest, all of that good stuff that you need to get. You need to co-create the goals of the patients, but it all starts with getting their narrative, getting that desired future state, and then framing everything that you do from that, that point on for the patient around that disclosure that they gave you. So like, this is your major goal. You know, maybe it's to, to play baseball with your, with your grandkids in the backyard. Maybe it is something very big, like I want to train for a marathon. You should always be using that in every single appointment for your patients. Like, okay, we're going to do this exercise because it's going to get you here and that will get you one step closer to running that marathon. Or we're going to work on this muscle here because that's going to help your stability with your patella and that's going to help you with your, your knee when it's flexing and that's you know going to help you run your marathon. But you always want to be tying it back to whatever that patient said was their major goal, right? Always tying it back to that desired future state and that's going to keep the patient engaged they're going to see the reason to keep showing up for therapy. And then they're also going to perceive on your end that you're offering very individualized, which it will be individualized and very valuable services that they can't get anywhere else. So that's a long, long answer for the question. <laughs> that No, that is honestly, that was a lot of content, but I'm definitely, I already want to replay that and just kind of break that down again and apply that. Like today I have clinicals. I want to go out and be able to, if I have an eval, go through it with them like I think that's such an important thing that I think we do okay in physical therapy because the aspect of really getting to know them and things I feel like sometimes when I go to like a doctor's office just like you know like an MD or anything like that or DO talk with them and you feel like it's 10 minutes and they are in and out and they're gone with physical therapy we get more time with them but to really even build it even further with the things that you've shared I think it's such a great tool to really get that investment on both sides and help them understand like look at we are so like i think because as a profession and in ptot we are so committed to helping them achieve the highest quality of life possible and for them to really understand that we are invested in them and want to know what their passions are and help to get them back to those things or to get them to that quality of life that they want i think having that structure that you've shared with us is such a key way and i really really am grateful that you were able to share a little bit with that yeah well and it, it is one of those things like if you're, if that is your ultimate goal to help patients get back to what is meaningful to them, like you just need to structure your, your treatment and the way you're, you're providing care in a way that communicates that to the patient. Right. So, yeah, that is perfect. I love that a lot. And I, yeah, I kind of wanted to go a little bit further on that. 
a couple of the avenues I think that are I think obviously if you get it from the get go that is so key and that's so important to to create that and kind of build that that buy in early on. But a couple other things too that I just wanted to to ask you about um, with your experience and everything that I've kind of seen in outpatient clinics um, is sometimes like there the aspect of having a reschedule or cancellations. Those things are I obviously are more common in the outpatient clinic than inpatient because they can't can't go anywhere. But um, like with that. What are some of the things that you guys do to address those things? Because it happens, and like you said, there's tons of missed opportunity and potential when that happens. Yeah, so there's there's a couple practical things that you can do off the get-go. I mean, some things, there are some times where it is a legitimate reason that a patient calls and needs to reschedule. You know, this doctor that I haven't been able to see for six months, had an opening this afternoon and I have to take it or it'll be six months before I see him. Or, you know, my kid got sick and I had to go pick him up from school. Now we're seeing a lot of, you know, like I was exposed to COVID. I need a quarantine. Like there's, there's some things you're just not going to get around. Right. Mm-hmm. Some of the practical things that you can do to decrease at least the no show or the cancellation rate is going to be offering more convenience in the way that you reschedule and even recapturing visits. So we've done this a bit at at Proactive and we we instruct our our clients to do this is if you're offering telehealth or virtual health services, virtual PT services, you should always, when a patient calls to reschedule or to cancel, you, you offer a telehealth visit then and there because you, there's a chance that you can get them on the schedule and not lose the visit entirely, which means the patient's going to get the services they need. You're not going to be faced with an entirely empty schedule and losing out on the revenue. So it's a win-win. Um, and that's kind of just a practical issue, just using telehealth as a visit recapture tool. Um, and then the other thing revolves around, again, that perception of value. You know, a lot of a lot of clinics will do cancellation fees, no-show fees, um, you know, prepaying, all that kind of stuff. And ultimately, like if, if you think about what that's saying is you're punishing patients for not showing up to therapy, which my way of viewing it is if the services that I'm providing are really improving their quality of life and what, what the patient is getting from me is the knowledge and the expertise, my clinical knowledge and expertise to get them where they need to get, then the punishment for them if they no-show is going to be losing out on that expertise, right? So I don't feel like we need to be applying no-show fees or cancellation fees to patients. Sometimes I can understand having it on on paper and then never enforcing it like, like we've done every now and then. Um, but it really comes around, again, when you're having the conversation with patients at that first appointment, you're having a value conversation, Part of the extension of that value conversation is going to be co-creating the treatment plan with the patient. And if you've established rapport at the upfront, at the very beginning, you can say things like, listen, if it's if two times a week is gonna be too much for you because it's you know it's too expensive for you, you can't financially take, you know, take the means to do that, or you're gonna be missing too much work, or you're booked. I had a guy that was a a CEO and he was, you know, running all kinds of stuff. He was lucky to get a 30 minutes in his week to do to do some therapy like i get that people are busy let's offer a more convenient way to do it but if patients don't get put on the schedule for appointments they're never going to make in the first place because of their life circumstances or whatever then you you know if they're never put on the schedule they don't become cancellations they don't become no-shows 
then the issue turns to this patient that maybe is a is frequently canceling or frequently no showing what you need to do is you need to have a direct conversation with those patients about whatever it is that's causing them to no show or cancel right um, and usually this helps pulling back in that desired future state and saying listen you know you're telling me you want to you know run a marathon let's just stick with this example you want to run a marathon and you're you know this knee pain is keeping you from doing that but you've canceled three appointments in the last couple of weeks and that's really going to impact your ability one to progress and to get to the point where that knee is strong enough to for you to run without injuring yourself and it's going to ultimately impact your ability to do that i just need to understand from you has something changed in your priorities or um or or why has why has there been something that's that's coming up that's making you prioritize that over therapy you you basically need to get down to that because most of the time it's a priority issue again negating all those all those patients that have legitimate issues sick kids uh, quarantine you know whatever appointments that open up at the very last possible minute last minute work obligations whatever you take those patients aside all of the, all of the other cancellations and reschedules that you have really are a priority problem and not a time conflict problem. So you need to have a conversation with the patient about their priorities and discover with them um, where therapy really lies in their priorities with them. And sometimes, and I've done this with patients too, like sometimes it means that for them in this season of their life, therapy is not a priority for them. That's totally fine as long as both of us are aware of that, right? Because if both of us are aware, we don't hold a spot for them on the schedule that they're gonna end up canceling and opening up down the line and the patient isn't, you know, felt trapped, if you would, if they're in one of these engagements where they have like a late cancellation fee or a no-show fee. Um, so it's better for everybody to have that conversation at the beginning. And because value is subjective to everybody, like everybody, what one person values, another person might not, you know, we as therapists, because of our, uh, our position in life as being people who are or helping other people heal and recover and perform at their best. If we see a deficiency or we do see a dysfunction, we're like, oh, obviously the, this person needs to strengthen their vastus medialis and this should be their top priority, but it might not be the priority for the patient. And you need to have that conversation and don't waste either of your times if it turns out that the patient really doesn't care that much, right? Unfortunately, you know, some patients are not ready to commit to whatever behavioral change or or whatever life change needs to happen for them to, to achieve the outcomes that they're that you as, as a therapist expect them to have right yeah that's totally true that everyone has a perception of and everyone's juggling things differently and, and obviously we have that emphasis on having the highest quality of life and helping them rehab but yeah that like you said like the ceo and all those different people have a lot of other things going on that we can't expect them to be 100 percent committed to physical therapy or ot and just only have that as an importance and I, I kind of wanted to go off of that too this is kind of a difference between the cancellation if people and you kind of mentioned this all of a sudden oh the doctor has an opening the first time in six months and like they're always one like I was talking to one of my colleagues and they're like whenever you're at a doctor's appointment you're always there on time you're hardly ever there late or you hardly ever just make it by the skin of your teeth with PT sometimes sometimes it's you're right there on time or a couple minutes later you know right on that range. Why do you think there's a difference in the different healthcare fields with that, with that punctuality to appointments? Is it because of the scarcity in doctor's appointments, you think, or, or what, what do you, have you thought about that? Well, scarcity is part, but it all turns, it, it's all again about perceived patient value, 
right? So you have to do your job. This is more on the business and the marketing side, but then also on the communication with the patient side of demonstrating and communicating the value that you provide to your patients. So if a patient sees you as a commodity, right? You're just another physical therapist that's gonna do some exercises on my shoulder to get me better. Um, yeah, they're gonna show up late to their appointment. They're gonna come in right in time, whatever, whatever it is, be late, cancel, no show. If on the other hand, the patient sees you as one, a clinical expert who's competent and proficient and able to get them the results they need, but then two, like the clinic that is the, gonna be the solution to their problem, they're gonna be much more likely to show up to their appointment. So again, it all comes back to that very first interaction, getting that desired future state and then framing everything that you're doing with the patient with that desired future state. And then, yeah, there are some times where if a patient cancels and PTs and OTs were like this because we're very empathetic people, like, yes, we'll double book ourselves or we'll, we'll work through lunch to get this patient in. I, I draw a firm line there. We do not do that. <laughs> and the reason for that is because there, there needs to be some scarcity involved just from, again, from a patient perception value. So from, for our clinic right now, um, we're booking about 30 days out for evals and stuff like that on the, on the hand specialty side. Um, and that is entirely because one, as a clinician, like I'm not going to overwork the clinicians and have us, you know, working through lunch and all that but then on the patient side too like they're seeing okay i had to wait a while to get this appointment for something that is very important to me i'm not going to miss any appointments because if i miss an appointment i know that it'll be a week or two before i can get another appointment in right um, sometimes you're not able to do that because you don't have that many patients um, you should still draw some some lines around where you will and will not schedule patients so that there is um at least an artificial demand, demand or scarcity placed on your time, right? Because your time is valuable, your time is important. You should not be um, you should not be giving it away a lot of a lot for patients that are canceling and no showing and needing to reschedule last minute. Yeah, because it, it'll establish a pattern, right? Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I kind of want to be like a devil's advocate, I guess, after a little follow up on what you said. So if you say, oh, we're only going to be able to book thirty days in advance, or come to that. Is there ever, what happens, I don't know, the thought process of, oh, they might just go with somebody else or some other healthcare provider. In that instance, do you just take that and understand that that may happen? Or you believe that confidently in your, in your uh, treatments that they'll be able to be willing to wait that long to be C treatment? Yeah, I think a little bit of both. So there are, I mean, the, the studies have been coming out for years, right? 90% of people in pain don't get physical or occupational therapy, right? So there's there's more patients out there than we could ever treat in in a year's worth of time. So some of it is a mindset mindset shift and there is this this very closed pie mentality on the part of physical and occupational therapists where they feel like if they if they don't capitulate, if they don't bend over backwards, if they don't get these patients in, there are going to be more patients for them down the line. And the reality is like, that's just not true. <laughs> we live in a world where again, there, we, especially in the United States, we have a, we have an aging population who's going to continue to have more and more dysfunction as they age combined with your general, you know, injuries and, and sports injuries and surgeries and that kind of thing that there's, there's work falling off the trucks for occupational physical therapists. Um, 
it is it is very much a mindset thing and my way of looking at it is like if somebody is not willing to wait and they're willing to go some somewhere else where they can get seen sooner um if they if the patient believes that that's it's a if the patient believes that that is going to be a an adequate substitute then that's on me not the patient right like if i've done such a poor job of communicating the value that we're going to provide in our services that the patient sees any other physical therapist as the as the solution to their problem then it means one of two things one the patient just doesn't really value value the services we provide in which case we probably didn't want them in the clinic in the first place or two we did something wrong and we did not position ourselves the way we should have in the marketplace so there's some of that is is positioning and marketing some of it is a mindset shift but yeah i don't i don't tend to worry about it because there's we spend millions of dollars every year treating patients with chronic pain and those numbers are going up every year so there there are going to be patients that need your services you just need to learn how to find them that's perfect no thanks i just wanted to kind of elaborate more on that and learn from your insight that you've gotten um and yeah i just kind of wanted to know what other advice or input would you give to owners who really want to become successful and grow their clinic and help kind of provide the best care for all of their patients yeah um i think what helped me early on was having a a couple friends who had already branched out of traditional w-2 work and gone to be self-employed and there were plenty of nights where we were cracking a cerveza or drinking coffee depending on whatever you wanted to, to have there and um we talked about what was going on i shared <laughs> some of my struggles and fears about what was coming up in the future they talked about what they had done to overcome it you know we kind of helped each other so it, it helps having a network of folks um and then the other thing is to really always be learning so before i even left steady employment to be self-employed and to and to be an entrepreneur i had a friend one of these friends that owns a he owns a marketing firm and he was always talking to me about books that he was reading right like this dude was he reads a whole lot um and he would give me these these recommendations or books and i'd say yeah sure whatever i think that the time that i started reading which was about the a year before i left the va I, my goal was to read a book a month now i'm 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 working on like two a month, which is kind of nice. <laughs> but what the what the reading did even before I left to start my businesses was it began began reframing in my mind one what was possible. Two, it gave me the knowledge that I need. I've learned more about marketing and positioning in the last four years as a you know one doing it for clients but then reading a whole lot about it than i would have ever learned otherwise um and then two back to the mindset thing like if you're reading you are what you put in right like you are what you put in your body on a nutritional standpoint it's the same thing with your mind if you're reading constantly reading about business ownership, about the challenges of running a profitable organization, about things that people are doing in other sectors or other industries, and then applying it to your own business and your own career, you're going to end up much more um, on better footing. I'm not going to say like you're going to be a gazillionaire, but you'll be on a better course than somebody who's just trying to fumble through and do it in the dark, right? So right now, currently, I'm reading three different books. Um, one of them is it's 
called Islands of Profit in a Sea of Red Ink, and it's all about managing cash flow. Um, one is called The Management Myth by uh, Matt Stewart, and it's all about management and people leadership. And then I'm reading a book on, it's called Margin, and it's about building time in your in your work-life balance, basically building that margin in your life so that you can um, not stress yourself to death. So I'm reading books like that all the time, and it's doing a couple things, right? It's helping me learn a little bit about running an organization, about building my knowledge in that, in that area of business. It's helping me be a better leader to my team members, and it's helping me on the personal side with, with just life, quality of life in general. So I would encourage anybody who's thinking about becoming an entrepreneur or business owner, even anybody that's going into management, just to start reading, right? Just read, 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 learn, learn, learn. Podcast if you're into that. Um, but you always need to be learning. I, I love that. That's something that I feel like anybody who has come onto the podcast so far and shared has been an entrepreneur. That's one of the always things that they highlight is the importance of learning and gaining that knowledge continually. And for the podcast listeners right now, like we're at, we have a radio on, we're talking, I see a couple books behind Rafi, and I just wanted to know, like obviously you're reading a lot of books, what have been some of the most influential books um, that you have read so far that have really stuck out to you, and how so? Sure, so um, one of the books that probably changed my life in the way that I manage my own, like my own personal finances and then the finances of the business was a, a book by Vicki Robbins called Your Money or Your Life. Um, and it's all about, she, she really reframes what your job is and, and your time and all of that. So it was one of the books that really started, started me on my path to, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. <laughs> um, and then another book that was great, it was a, a book by David C. Baker called The Business of Expertise. And now he is a consultant that works for and consults with um, graphic design firms and marketing firms, that sort of thing. But his idea around positioning in the marketplace, around developing a, a status or a position in your market as an expert, and then what that means to operate from a position of expertise rather than um, like a commoditized vendor or something like that really influenced a lot of the work that I do at, with clients at Rehab U and a, a lot of what we do here at Proactive as well, the way we we handle patient engagement. So those two are great ones. Um, I'm trying to think, oh, Annie Duke. So right back there, How to Decide was a great book, but her first book, Thinking in Bets, was phenomenal. Um, I would definitely encourage anybody to read that one. Uh, we've talked I, when I used to teach. So I used to be a professor at um, at Augusta University in their OT department. And when I taught the evidence based practice course, I, I pulled a lot of information from thinking in bets. She talks a lot about how to make decisions and how we value or how we how we should grade and judge decisions, not based on the outcome, but on the quality of the decision itself. So uh, that would be a great one. Go read that one. <laughs> okay, perfect. No, I, I love reading books as well. And so like, and I, honestly, all three of those I have not read yet. So that is great to know. And I'm really excited to be able to look at, at those and try to read those as well once I get a little bit more free time. But that's perfect. Thank you for that. Um, yeah, I don't want to take up too much of your time. This is honestly flown by. I, I feel like we could talk a lot more on different topics. But um, just before we wrap up, what is something that you had wished you had learned sooner in your career? that has made such a big impact to really make like that next level, that next step in your career? Um, probably what it was for me was 
so I started as a solopreneur, as a solo independent consultant, which meant that for the last probably four years of my career, I was doing it all. Like I was the show. Um, probably within the last seven, eight months since buying this clinic and having two, well, three business ventures kind of up and running, um, I just reached the limit of me, <laughs> right? So I've got, I've got four young kids. My oldest is six. We've got a baby due, so I'll have five kids that are six and under by the end of this year. Um, so I've got a lot going on personally. I've got three businesses that I'm trying to run and keep profitable and get one of them off the ground. There's just a whole lot to be done. And it wasn't until, like I said, around eight months or so ago where I was like, you know what, really what I should have been doing from the very beginning was systematizing everything that I had done, either documenting it or that, which is what I ended up doing. I documented it, put it in a manual. And now I've got systems in place for the businesses where if I got hit by a bus tomorrow or I had to miss because you know my kid had an ear infection, I had to stay home, whatever it is, there's a, a process in place for virtually everything that gets done. We're still building it out for the clinic, but for virtually everything that gets done in the business so that it's not dependent on me. Um, and that's a relatively recent, <laughs> recent development in my life. I wish I had done that at the very beginning and who knows where I would be now. But um, yeah, so the idea of taking the time to document your processes and procedures and then handing those things off to other people so that you can spend your time focused on those high value things that only you can do, right? Your zone of genius, if you would. I love that. That's something that I feel like I've kind of been learning like different aspects, like got interested in like a little bit of real estate stuff too, just learning it. And that's what everyone says. It's creating systems in anything makes you so much more efficient, really kind of what you said, focuses on what you love and some of those other things that you're doing because it's part of the process you can send out to people that are actually really good at that and have that passion behind it so that you can focus on things that you love. So that's great advice. Thank you so much. Um, and before we end, yeah, would you be able to share what would be the best way if someone's interested in talking with you, a way to contact you? Um, and also, is there any other last minute additional advice or information um, that you'd like to give to the audience? Sure. Yeah. So you can find me on, uh, on the website. So RehabUPracticeSolutions.com. So that's Rehab, the letter U, PracticeSolutions.com. Um, there's plenty of forms there you can fill out to contact me or contact Sharon, my assistant. Um, or on LinkedIn. Find me on LinkedIn. My name is Raphael E. Salazar II. There's a few, few Raphael Salazars floating out on LinkedIn, but if you type in the second, you'll find me. Um, happy to connect, happy to chit chat. Um, and then, yeah, if you want to go to to the website, to RehabUPracticeSolutions.com, there's a form there that you can fill out and we'll send you uh, the five keys to the ultimate patient experience, which is based off of uh, our signature program at RehabU called the, the Ultimate Patient Experience Blueprint. Um, and yeah, keep That's on perfect. trucking. Awesome. Thank you so much. Rafi, I really appreciate it. That flew by, honestly. Um, but I, I love being able to talk about this. I definitely want to re-listen to this and I feel like everyone on the podcast We'll be able to get a lot out of this, even if they're in PT school right now, of how, how to create a more um, patient-centered um, experience for everybody that you work with when you're out on clinicals, um, but just in general, making it more of an efficient and enjoyable process for everybody on the team. But thank you again, Rafi, for coming on. Yeah, have a good one. All right, thanks.
thanks everybody for listening to the podcast. I hope you liked that episode. If you did, make sure to subscribe and also leave a review. Thanks everybody and we'll see you next time.